0: Welcome everybody to our first ever episode of
1: What a load of <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Now, how this idea came up for this podcast is we get all these questions from agents and what these questions are surrounded around are um, we present or an agent presents Kaizen to a client or maybe one of our other strategies, but most of this is Kaizen and then That client goes out and they talk to an independent, independent independent. financial advisor that has no vested interest in what they're saying. And when we discuss these in meetings, you would say, what
1: a load of rubbish.
0: So we thought that would just make a great title for addressing some of these questions in a fun way. um, So everybody would be entertained at the same time that they're learning. So now we want to make sure everybody's...
1: Yeah, so the first thing we say is if you like this kind of format and you think it's fun and educational, uh, go to the NRW YouTube and hit subscribe. And just for the old timers like me, that doesn't mean you're paying anything. It's just so that you can get notifications. And we'll I try and keep a steady flow of... Uh, i just... It's either uninformed or intentionally mis miss. miss presenting stuff or something i don't know what it is although it is essentially around vested interests talking under the name of independent and what's even worse is some of the stuff that comes up is so ridiculous that you go this person should just say nothing because they clearly have no clue what they're talking about and they're just spouting off rubbish and, Which, and
0: this, and talking to the rubbish. This is our this is our kaizen pig that's taking out the trash with our rubbish truck. So this <laughs>
1: is. <laughs> so we even put this little yeah graphic around it just because it. Internal just to meeting, make it more fun. Well, internal meetings became fun as our sales team are bringing up these questions. We're scratching our head going. What could possibly be the thinking behind this question?
0: Now, the next thing we want to remind you of is if you have content for this podcast, please send that to marketing at com, and we will decide each week which one of those we want to address. Now, we're only going to take ones that are actual comments. So you need the email that's an actual reply from the advisor, whether that's a CPA, an attorney, an insurance agent, a registered investment advisor, whoever the client is going to to get this, this Ind- advice. Ind-
1: independent advice. Independent
0: yeah. advice. So first off, the first one that we're going to go through is one that comes up quite a lot. Um, this is one where I'm not going to tell you all the names, but anyway, basically it's addressing it to our agent. And he says, uh, the guy I was originally working with reached out a few weeks ago to see if I wanted to continue talking about the whole life product with him. I told him I was going to go with Kaizen, and he immediately warned me about all the pitfalls. I had to call him today, and he explained what he didn't like about your program. I'm very frustrated with the whole process right now. Each person I talk to bashes the other person's products and talks about all the hidden uh, fees and all the projections that aren't correct I've gotten to the point where I don't want to do anything I was told I would be better off just buying term and investing the difference versus buying an index policy so Dane what do you have to say about that
1: yeah, what a load of <laughs> yeah, uh, well a yeah, bit joking notwithstanding <laughs> what we're trying to make sure is the if a client decides Kaizen's not for them that's fine right? But at least do it for the right reasons, not just spurious stuff that comes out of somebody's mouth because this so-called independent person actually does have a very, very vested interest in why you don't want to buy it so they can sell you something else. And if that something else is better for you, great. But if it isn't, let's just dispel the BS. Right.
0: Okay, so, you know, we kind of forgot to introduce ourselves, but I'm Grace Bernard, and this uh, is Dane Moonwell.
1: Uh, co-founders of NIW, You've been doing this for quite a long while, so...
0: Over 22 years. Uh, I wasn't
1: going to say that, I'm still 21.
0: <laughs> well, I've been in the business 35 years, so I also have securities background, uh, principal background, and insurance background, so I feel like I'm somewhat qualified to answer some of these questions, so... The problem with a lot of the term policies is that they only last for 30 years. They're more expensive the older you get. And if you look at the life expectancy of the average person, most of these policies don't last beyond that life expectancy.
1: So can I translate that in? Mm -hmm. Right. So what you're basically saying is it's only cheap when you're not going to die. Right. And less than 1% payout, which means 99% of all the policies that are out there do nothing but cost you some money.
0: Well, funny you should mention that because the persistency of term policies is less than 1%. So 99% of the people out there don't keep their term in force to actually ever pay a claim. And the other thing that's interesting is there is a two-year average that these policies actually stay on the books before they either lapse or they're converted to a permanent policy. Why? Because basically 66% of the people out there that are buying insurance are saying they're doing it to transfer a benefit, to protect their family, to transfer wealth. Right.
1: To, Traditional reasons why people correct. will buy life insurance.
0: And so if you want a permanent policy, or the majority of people want a permanent policy, that's mm-hmm. not a good idea to be using term to do that.
1: So it's really, term is a good short-term, I'll call it bridging policy. But if you really want life insurance as a protection, you're going to need a permanent policy, otherwise... Statistically you're wasting your money.
0: Correct. Okay. Okay. So with that being said, now we're gonna have to look at some of the reasons behind the life insurance permanent policy. So in other words, if the insurance company knows that they're gonna have to pay out a million dollars of death benefit at some point, they need to collect a lot more premium than ninety grand or whatever term costs for a million dollar policy. They're gonna need to collect way more money than that because
1: they know statistically they're gonna pay it. They're gonna have a much higher chance of paying, right?
0: Therefore that <clears> means <throat> that you need more of a permanent type policy.
1: So it's just like any other investment, right? Life insurance company goes, okay, at some future date I'm gonna have to pay you a million bucks. How much do I have to get with you? Make some profit, get some investment return in order to make that worth my time to take on that risk. Right? I mean not rocket science. I mean it's sophisticated maths, but at the end of the day that's
0: Well, awesome. so basically the insurance industry created these cash value or cash accumulation policies to allow you to pay for your cost of the insurance but also put some excess money in there that could earn a rate of return. Those would be in the form of like uh, stuff you're familiar with would be whole life, uh, universal whole life. Whole of
1: your life. That was its original phrase, wasn't right? it?
0: Uh, variable life, index life. Well, o-
1: most people aren't familiar with that.
0: Correct. But the point I'm trying to make is that the industry created these products so that you could put... Uh, enough money in there to cover your cost of insurance and add more to get a rate of return so that it would help pay or cover those costs or use them for whatever so you need front to do. So you're
1: front-loading the premiums of the future, but it cuts your overall cost down because the excess money grows at whatever the, it's invested in, and that helps reduce the cost later because you're using that investment mm-hmm. return to pay the premiums, right? Correct.
0: This okay. will kind of give you a good visual of that because you can see the expenses at the bottom of this policy and you can see the excess cash that you're putting into that policy to get a rate of return over and above just the cost of insurance. And so you pay those premiums over a period of time and you want that policy to last way longer than
1: so most So most of these are designed to last at age 120 and all the difference is is that what they're investing in right so universal life you can translate into bonds they're just investing in bonds whole life it's bonds plus a bit of dividend from the carrier variable life is just investing in securities as a general rule right and index universal life is kind of a hybrid between the two
0: right and, okay. and the great thing about the ability to earn cash is that if you have covered your cost of insurance and you're wanting to maybe reduce the amount of death benefit you have because you're older in life and you don't need as much insurance, now you have the ability to start taking some income off that excess cash you've been able to grow in that policy, with a lot of advantages because you had the tax-deferred growth, and you can use policy loans to get tax-free distributions, and so it can be very beneficial if you keep it long-term and if you heavily overfund them.
1: So can I just translate again? If you put more money than is needed to cover costs, at a future date, you can just borrow that money out tax-free with the provision you don't lapse the policy, right? Correct. Okay.
0: So, the problem is, again, with permanent policies, that most people do not keep these policies in force. So, the persistency rate of permanent policies is less than um, 75%. So.
1: Hang on, whoa! Seventy-five percent drop off.
0: Seventy-five percent drop off, and that persistency is in the first three years. So seventy-five so, so why, percent. But why do
1: people? Why do they get? Why do they drop off? You know, why is it? You, I buy a permanent policy for the, that's for the rest of my life, but it drops off after three years. Why?
0: Because it's very cash-heavy. Cash you have to put a lot of cash in there to overfund those policies. You have to do it at a pretty significant amount, and so a lot of people start off with great intentions. They really like the concept, but life happens. My kid went to college. You like my
1: diet, right? I start off with good intentions, and after a couple of days, it's like, oh, hell with this, right? Correct. So the key thing about the life insurance that everybody's talking about is in order for it to work, you have to overfund it. That's cash intensive. People go, well, do I want to put it in that investment versus another investment or spend it on the holiday and they don't do it.
0: Or your business isn't doing like you thought it was because of the inflation going on in the in uh, the world today. And so maybe you want to hoard that cash to put it back into the investment of your company. Whatever those reasons are, people people just run out of money. Or they say, well, I'll skip a year and I'll do it next year. Or I'll skip two years and I'll do it a couple of years after that. And so. They end up that,
1: not doing that, it. That becomes, Whatever the reason, right? They end up not doing it. Correct. So people like the idea of life insurance, hate the idea of paying premiums. Correct. Okay.
0: So look, from our perspective, and this is just our perspective, our views, um, why in the world would a advisor tell a client, buy term and invest the difference when term doesn't stay in force long enough to pay any claim? And if you don't have the money to overfund a permanent policy, what makes you think you're going to overfund your investments and in you know, invest the difference plus the, you're investing in a let's separate two things. Untaxed then. advantaged account.
1: Yeah, let's separate well, let's separate three things then. Right. The first thing is do people actually do it? And all the research suggests that they don't keep the term and they don't invest the difference. So it's one of those lines that's used a lot, but in practice doesn't actually happen that often. Correct. The motive for why the advisor is doing it. Now, let's look at it. A lot of that advice comes from people who are managing the money that if you take the money from them and then put it in the policy, they're not managing it anymore. So they have kind of a vested interest or I think what's more frequent is they just don't understand the mechanics of the IUL or the whole life. So they go with the easy, right? I know what term is and I know what investments is Let's stick with what I know and I don't want to appear in front of you is I don't know, so I'm gonna say what I do know. So one is motive. But the final thing is really, really important, what you said. It's not about your return, it's about how much money you have net of tax. So why would I want to invest the difference in something that may or may not grow at a better rate, depending on what i have invested in, but I then get taxed on? Correct. So I'm gonna lose 20% or whatever the long-term capital gains that I do it at the time of, I'm gonna lose out on top of it. So it's kind of like, um, it sounds good, but in practice, it just doesn't materialize.
0: Correct, so, look, there's two things that you need to do to make this concept work, and that's have time, to allow them to perform like they're supposed to, and money. And if you are not gonna overfund these policies, then you're not gonna do that outside of it either from our perspective, if you are going to overfund these and you do have the time to make them work properly, you should be doing it inside the policy itself because you get that tax deferred growth, you get the permanent policy, you get to take the money tax free. And as long as you have that ability to do that inside the policy, they're very, very efficient.
1: But there's the rub, isn't it? Because it only works if you can heavily overfund on a consistent basis for say 10 years. And what we know is that, forget whether it's invest term, uh, buy term investor difference, what we know is that people don't have the money and the statistics are stark on this. Even with successful people, people earning over 200,000, we know that less than 10%, these are successful people, less than 10% are saving sufficiently. On average, nine to twelve percent. They need to save thirty to thirty-five. So, one of the biggest misconceptions, and I think this is what Kaizen's really trying to zero in on: Who cares which is the best investment if you don't have enough money in the game to start with? How much money have you got to invest, right? So, you're going to take if you're doing buy-term investor difference, you're going to buy a let's say million-dollar term policy, and I'm going to invest the rest. All I'm left with at the end of that term insurance is a death benefit that if I die early, I can benefit from. But there is no cash value. Right. If I invest the rest, all that growth is subject to long-term capital gains, right? So let's assume a similar growth. Let's assume that people are using similar types of investments. Otherwise, we have to try and figure out how to show risk variation, right? Um, But- you're going to end up with essentially not very much, as you can see on this bar chart. Correct. Now, along comes the whole life industry or an agent selling whole life and says, well, whole life is a better investment because I can take your $50,000, I can give you the death benefit, and it statistically will be there for the rest of your life. And any surplus gets invested in a conservative portfolio with guarantees, right? And so I have my million dollars of death benefit, but I just don't have that much money left after all those guarantees to borrow that much money out of it. And that's not because the carrier is being mean or anything. It's just like a really, really safe investment versus a more risky investment.
0: But it's enough excess money that can help cover some of those costs. And it's got those tax advantages, insurance. right? Correct.
1: Now, if we say, take the same investment and put it into an IEL, IUL, sorry, we'll get the same death benefit, with fewer guarantees. But with those fewer guarantees means there's more money available to invest. And because the risk of the IUL is slightly more risky, it's not a lot more, it's not as much as a stock portfolio, but it's not as same as conservative as a bond. Over time, and what we're taking this bar chart to is to age 50, so 20 years of investing, right? Because I have lower expenses, the fewer guarantees, and because I have a higher growth rate, I can show more cash, more death benefit. And the increase in death benefit is just because of some insurance rules. But my underlying assumptions is I've got more net cash to grow. Here's the problem with all three of those scenarios. I don't have enough money to save. So we go back to our point, right? About all the policies that are lapsing. Well, it's, just, it's not just that they're lapsing is I, even if I bought Term and Invest the Difference and kept the term, I'm still not invest, saving enough money. Right? So at this point, it's, it's like saying, how far across the desert do you get before you die? Well, I'd rather not die. I'd rather get to the other side. I needed more juice to get to the other side, or in this case, water.
0: And for most people, why worry about death benefit when you're still alive and you haven't saved enough money for retirement in the first place? That's
1: one of the problems with life insurance, right? I mean, most people go, why do I want to buy an asset that benefits my kids? I want something for me. And only if I die prematurely do I want to look up that, all death's premature, I guess. I get it. But the point is, if I die before my time, I leave the family with hardship. That's one of the key things about life insurance. But that's what not what people are doing here. If I'm buying term investing, the difference is because I want to invest. I want some growth because we know that people rank uh, extra income way above life insurance, death benefit. Way, I mean, it's way higher. It's like number one or number two of financial concerns. Life insurance is like 12 to 15, you know, somewhere behind um, you know, securities, uh, sorry, um internet fraud or identity theft those sorts of things right so low priority the
0: permanent policies give you a way to have your cake and eat it too because you can protect your family and you can save for retirement assuming that you have enough money and there we go right it's it's enough money right
1: so why is kaizen so much more valuable in this context we're not trying to say one's a better asset we're we're trying to say one allows banks to give you the difference between what you are saving and what you should be saving so you can juice up the critical mass. Now, this turns out to be super important. Research indicates that 74% of what decides how much money you're actually going to be able to pull out of any savings plan, retirement plan, whatever, is driven by how much money you have to invest. Only 26% is based on investment return. So every advisor is out there saying, my investment's better than your investment. Who the hell cares? Because if you don't have enough money, you're still going to die in the desert. And I'd rather not do that. So the whole point here is that we're solving the one problem nobody has a solution for, which is give me an asset, happens to be IUL, that allows a bank to lend extra money into this structure that I benefit greatly from. Now, what is that benefit? A- Statistically, I'm going to get 60 to 100% more supplemental income. If I choose not to take that income, I'm just going to get more death benefit because there's more cash. Here's a really, really interesting fact that was just confirmed by one of our carrier partners with their research, is the probability of you getting to your goal, or my analogy, getting to the other side of the desert, is massively greater. So people spend all their time worrying about retirement, worrying about their quality of life. And the single biggest thing that's going to help get them there is leverage. So just give me an asset that allows us to do it.
0: So basically, the banks are going to allow you to put in roughly 25% of the cost as opposed to 100% of the cost. Let's go
1: back. Premium. premium. Right? Because premium costs are not the same.
0: Correct. But the dollar amount that you would be normally paying out of pocket to fully fund those permanent policies, Bingo. you can put in about 25% of the total 10 years of premium payments, therefore you have a higher probability that you're actually going to be consistently putting in the money to get the rate of return that you hope to get and get the outcome that you hope to get.
1: So you end up with two things happening, right? Situation one, I do this myself, I'm going to get a smaller policy with therefore smaller amounts of money at the end of the trail, and I have to fund for 10 years. In Kaizen, I take the same money I was going to save anyway, but I do it for five years. So I don't get the same kind of, I'll call it investor fatigue issue. And the bank's doing the heavy lifting, which is putting all the extra money. So what happens? My funding pattern is shorter, so I can do it. But also the amount of money going in day one is substantially bigger, so that I end up with much, much more money later, even after repaying the bank and all that good stuff. Now, just to remind everybody, we've done a lot of stress testing. So we're not worried about interest rates going up, or things like that. And thus the U.S. becomes Venezuela, which I think is somewhat unlikely economically speaking, right? We don't have to worry about those same concerns. So it's predictability and volume.
0: Well, I think to sum that up, Dane, we believe that the most um, efficient way to buy a permanent policy is through the use of Kaizen. And we believe that, that so much that we actually have them ourselves. You have two, I have two, um, our employees have them, our friends have them, our family has them. And don't
1: forget, almost everybody who did the due diligence on the program ended up buying one for themselves. Correct. Bankers, carrier people, all the rest of it.
0: A lot of executives of carriers, a lot of executives of our lenders. So uh, people that understand this program have bought into it and are sharing their results and I think that's really important so I, I guess the first thing that I would say to everybody is do your own research don't take every single person that you go out and talk to and ask their opinion don't take it at face value do your own research that's the first thing understand the motivations behind the people that you're asking the questions to so as an example if you're talking to a CPA the CPA should not be talking to you about necessarily how the life insurance products work unless they're insurance licensed because they don't have those qualifications they may understand the tax advantages of the life insurance policy but unless they're insurance agents and they have a lot of knowledge about how these products work probably not right the right person to be guiding you as to whether you should buy one or not um, Also, I would take the advice that they're giving you into the context in which they're giving it to you. As an example, if you're going to an investment advisor and asking him, his motivation may be that he doesn't want you to take money out of your invested assets and put them into a life insurance policy because from his perspective, he may not think of that as a good investment. That's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about whether it's a good investment or not. Um, So just take that context, uh, their advice in, in context of, what they're saying to you and then look for people that are willing to share their results uh, because the people that are willing to share their results are actual results and not illustrations and illustrations have a tendency for people to say this is what's going to happen and that's not the case at all illustrations are very very far it's just a snapshot of a moment in time if everything lines up
1: one possible outcome
0: correct Um, and and even when you look at people that are in it just because they have this um, track record or success on their plan doesn't mean that's what's going to happen on yours it just gives you a more realistic assumption of what's going on as opposed to a spreadsheet with a bunch of illustrations
1: i i tend to think of it this way look my my uh, aha moment was this when i computed that my retirement based on the spending that i anticipated having was going to cost me six times more than my house Now, I use a mortgage to buy my house. Most people do that because it's just too much cash. And you came up with this analogy, so I'll give you the credit before you think (laughs) I'm stealing it from you. But if something's going to cost me that much more than my house, the idea that you would do it without using leverage is just simply bonkers. But most of the people criticizing the plan are people who've never been trained on it, have never seen it, don't know the intricacies of it, but have an opinion anyway, which may or may not be very well informed, right? So my vote on that is, what a load of rubbish. Um, But get your facts, right? Just get facts and make a decision about whether it's right for you on that basis.
0: And, you know, probably to end this podcast, first off, we're sharing our own results with you, so you'll be able to see those on the screen here. But... Um, second from my perspective I think that it's crazy or bonkers as you like to use the term for people it's a British phrase it's (laughs) it's well known in in British circles well I think it's bonkers for people to be willing to use leverage to buy a house and a car and credit cards and their vacations and everything else but still feel uncomfortable about using leverage to buy life insurance
1: that's just even though it's a safer asset correct the key thing about Kaizen is you're not signing a loan document I mean, you do for a house, right? In theory, you have liability for that if the house value goes down. So much, much safer asset, which allows us to negotiate much, much safer terms. All
0: right. So that about wraps up that. Uh, We hope you would join us for the next podcast. We certainly hope you enjoyed this podcast. And again, if you want to follow us, please check out our NIW YouTube
1: and... Subscribe. Subscribe. And look for the next one, which will be hopefully entertaining, informative, and worth your time. Fantastic.